Chapter Eighteen of Monica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Little Miss Clumsy. Monica, by Evelyn Everett Green. A Shadow. The days that followed were very full of happiness and peace for Monica and her husband. They were alone together in the dim old castle, far away from the busy world of life they had so gladly left behind. Free to be with each other every moment of the flying hours, learning to know and to love one another with a more perfect comprehending love with each succeeding day. Not one tiny cloud of reserve or distrust clouded the sunshine of their horizon. Monica had laid before Randolph that unlucky letter of Lady Diana's, had listened with a sort of mingling of delight and indignation to his comments on the composition, delight to hear that he had always loved her from the first, that in gratifying her father's desire he had but been gratifying the dearest desire of his own heart indignation towards the mischief-making relative who had tried to deceive and humiliate her who had told her one half of the story and concealed the other but indignation was only a momentary feeling monica was too happy to cherish resentment her anger was but a passing spark i should like to speak my mind to lady diana remarked randolph as he tore the paper into small fragments and tossed them over the cliff. I always distrusted her wisdom, but I did not look for a deliberate malice like that. Why did you not show me that letter when it came, Monica, and let me see what I had to say to it? She looked up with a smile. Because I was so foolish and distrustful in those days, I did long to once, but then came the thought, suppose it should be true. And then they both smiled. There was a charm and sweetness in thus discussing the past, with the light of the happy present shining upon it. But she meant to be your friend, Randolph. We must not forget that. I suppose she thought that you would tell me of your love, but that she ought to inform me of your generosity. Poor Aunt Diana, we should get on better now. In those days, Randolph, I think I was very difficile, very willful and unapproachable. I used to think it would kill me ever to leave Trevlin. I think now that it would have been the ruin of me to stay. It is not good to grow up in one narrow groove and to gain no knowledge of anything beyond. That is quite true, Monica. Does that mean that you will be willing to leave travelling by and by? I shall be willing to do anything that you wish, Randolph. You know I would go anywhere with you. Do you want to take me away again? Presently, I think I do. I should like to take you to Scotland in August, to stay a month or two at my little shooting box there. You would like the free, roving life you could lead there, amongst that world of heather. And then there are things to be done at Trevlin. Monica, 
Will you be able to reconcile yourself to changes here? Changes? Yes, I should like to see travelling restored to what it must have been a century ago. The glory has departed of late years, but you have only to look round to see what the place must have been once. I want to restore that faded glory, not to introduce glaring changes, but to make it something like what it must have been when our ancestors lived there long years ago. Would you like that, Monica? It would not go against you, would it, to see travelling look so? I want it to be worthy of the mistress who will preside there. It is a wish that has haunted me ever since I entered its precincts and met you there. Monica was glad to enter into any plan proposed by her husband. She was willing he should restore Trevlin in any way that he wished, but she preferred that he should make his own arrangements about it, and let her only judge by the result. She could not yet enter with any sense of realization into projects for making Trevlin other than she had known it all her life, but she trusted Randolph's taste and judgment, and let him plan and settle everything as he would. She was ready to leave home whenever he wished it, the more so that Conrad Fitzgerald still occupied a suit of rooms in his half-dismantled house and hung about the neighbourhood in an odd, aimless sort of fashion. How he spent his time no one seemed to know, but he must have developed roving tendencies, for Monica was constantly seeing him in unexpected places, down by the rocky shore, wandering over the trackless downs, or crouching in the ether or behind a tree as she and her husband passed along in their daily walks or rides. He never met them face to face. He appeared to endeavour always to keep out of sight. Randolph, as a matter of fact, seldom saw him and paid no heed, when he did, to the vindictive scowl upon the yet beautiful face. But Monica seemed haunted by this persistent watching and waiting. She was ever on the lookout for the crouching figure in some place of concealment, for the glitter of the fierce blue eyes and the cruel sneer of the pale lips. She felt intensely nervous and timid beneath that sense of espionage, and she was glad when August came, and she was to leave Trevlin and inspect her behind. Accounts from Germany were very good. Arthur wrote little pencil notes every week, informing Monica that he was getting on like a house on fire and singing the praises of Tom, who had stayed so long with him, like the good fellow he was, and would have remained longer, only it really wasn't worth while. I'm afraid I've been very unjust to Tom, said Monica. I want to tell him so when he comes back. May we wait till he does? I want to hear all about Arthur at first hand, as I may not go to see him yet. So they waited for the return of the traveller. Monica did sincerely wish to hear about Arthur, but she had something else to report to Tom as well. She had the greatest confidence in his acuteness and penetration, and could sometimes say to him what she would have despaired of communicating intelligibly to anyone else. 
There was no difficulty in securing a private interview when once he had come back. Everyone knew how anxious Monica would be to hear every detail of Arthur's present life, and Tom resigned himself and told his tale with all possible fullness and accuracy. Monica listened with an absorbed look upon her face. When he had told all, she said simply, Thank you, Tom, for all your goodness to him. I am very sorry I ever misunderstood you and said such hard things of and to you. You have got the best of it in the end by heaping coals of fire upon me. He smiled slightly. My dear Monica, you don't suppose I troubled my head over your ladyship's righteous wrath. I found it very amusing, I assure you. I believe you did, assented Monica, smiling in turn, which made things a little trying for me. Tom, I believe you have always been my friend, even when we have seemed most bitterly opposed. The sudden earnestness of her manner made him look at her keenly, and he spoke without his usual half-mocking intonation. I hope so, Monica. I wish to have the right to call myself your friend. He looked steadily at her, knowing there was more to follow. She was silent for a time, and then came a sudden and most unexpected question, and one apparently most irrelevant. Do you know Sir Conrad Fitzgerald? I used to know him when he was a child. I knew him slightly at Oxford. He has made no attempt to renew the acquaintance since he has been down here, and, judging by what I have heard, I should not be inclined to encourage him if he did. But there would be nothing extraordinary in your visiting him. Possibly not, but I cannot say I have any wish to try the experiment. You know his history, perhaps? The dark stain? I heard of it at the time it happened. Not from Trevelyn, though. It's a sort of story that doesn't make one yearn to renew acquaintance with the hero. For a few moments, Monica sat very still and silent. Then she asked quietly, Do you think he is the kind of man to be dangerous? Dangerous? Yes, if he had taken a vow of vengeance. Do you think... Well, what? I think he would try very hard to accomplish such a vow. Do people never in these days try to do an injury to a man they hate? Tom began to understand her now. Well, one cannot lay down hard and fast lines, but it is not now customary for a man to attempt the sort of vengeance that he would have done a century or so back. He tries in these days to hurt an enemy morally by injuring his reputation, and I think no one need stand in much awe of Fitzgerald, least of all a man like your husband. It is necessary to possess a reputation of one's own to undermine that of another with much success. Fitzgerald certainly has a reputation, but not the kind that makes him dangerous as an enemy. Monica heard this dictum in silence. She did not appear much relieved, and he saw it. Now, you anticipate, he continued quite quietly and unemotionally, that he will make a regular attack upon Trevlin one of these days? I am afraid so sometimes, answered Monica. 
It may be very foolish, but I am afraid. He always seems watching us. Hardly a day goes by, but I see him, with such a evil look in his eye. Tom, I sometimes think that he is going mad. The young man's face changed slightly. That, of course, would put a new colour on the matter. Have you any reasons upon which to base your suspicions? Nothing that you would perhaps call reasons, but they make me suspicious. Randolph spoke of a touch of insanity that he had fancied lurked in his brain. At least, when he hates, he seems to hate with a ferocity that suggests the idea of madness. Tom, if you were to see him, should you know? Tom mused a little. I might be able to hazard a shrewd guess, perhaps. Why do you want so much to know? Without answering, Monica propounded another question. If he were mad, he would be much more dangerous, would he not? Yes, and if really dangerous, could be placed under proper control. A look of relief crossed Monica's face. Could that be done? Certainly, if absolute madness could be proved. But you know, in many cases, this is most difficult to demonstrate, and in Fitzgerald's independent position, it might be exceedingly hard to get the needful evidence. Her face clouded again. But you will see him, Tom. You will try to find out. He hesitated a little. To tell the truth, he did not care about the job. He had a hearty contempt for the man himself, did not attach much weight to Monica's suspicions, and thought her fears far-fetched. But her pleading face prevailed. Well, Monica, if you particularly wish it, I will endeavour to meet him and enter into a sort of speaking acquaintance. I don't promise to force myself upon him if he avoids me pointedly, but I will do what I can in a casual sort of way to find out something about him. But it is not at all likely he will prove mad enough to be placed under restraint. I believe he drinks, said Monica softly. He used not to, but I believe he does now. Well, if he has a screw loose and drinks as well, he may make an end of himself in time. At any rate, if it will relieve your mind, I will find out what I can about him. Thank you, Tom. I am very much obliged to you. And if you cannot do much, at least you can keep your eye upon him and let me know how long he stays here. I... I... It may be very foolish, but I don't want Randolph to come back till he has gone. Tom's eyes rouse went up. Then you really are afraid. She smiled faintly. I believe I am. Well, it sounds very absurd, but I have a sort of a faith in your premonitions. Anyway, I will keep your words in mind and do what I can and we will try and get him off the field before you are ready to return to it. I should not think the attractions of the place will hold him long. So Monica went off to Scotland with a lightened heart, and yet the shadow of the haunting fear did not vanish entirely, even in the sunshine of her great happiness. End of chapter 18